Thank you, Sally, and uh, a very big thank you to Fred um, for coping so well with all those names. They were, it was quite a lot, wasn't it? Um, I'm glad you had that reading and not me. <laughs> um, actually, just before I get going, Nehemiah is, is a story really all about healing and restoration, and I'm just actually going to invite Fred back up now. Fred, do you mind? I'm just going to invite Fred back up, because... I've asked him if he would just, just say a few words about a journey of healing and restoration that, that he has been on. Thanks, Fred. I became... Oh. I became... No, no, it was on. It was on. We just didn't have it on at the desk. There we go. Okay. I became a Christian at 16 years of age, and I did very earnestly want to walk with God. When I got married, I was very happy. My wife and I had plans to serve in the Christian ministry. But then she got ill and hanged herself. I was so shocked by this that for a few years I turned away from God. I got myself into deep trouble. Things that a Christian man should not do. But after some years, I came to St. Matthew's. And here, I found that the gospel was clearly preached. That Jesus was set forth as our lover, our friend, our healer, our God. And I met some fine Christian people here and found some godly friends. And I found that my mind was healing. Every time I came here, with the music, with the prayer ministries, with the home groups, I found God blessing and strengthening my mind. And I thank God that I can truly say that he has healed me from the wound of my wife's death. Mm -hmm. He's also healed me from all the years when I went astray and continues to heal me every time I come to this church, every time I speak with my friends, every time I send a text message to someone I love. I thank God and here in this church, I have found healing. Fred, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are the ultimate healer and restorer of lives, of hearts and minds and spirits. We pray that you would speak to us now as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Help us to find your healing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all been wounded in different ways. 
and to differing degrees, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, verbally. We've all been wounded. And that's why we have some services like this one that we identify as healing services. Not because you can't be healed in the other services. Of course you can, and Fred's testimony is that that he was. But more to remind us all fairly regularly that healing was not only a central part of Jesus' ministry, but that it continued to be a central part of the Christian faith and witness over the 2,000 years of church history and continues today. Our physical bodies are amazing things, aren't they? Did you know that you are younger than you think? Well, most of you are, perhaps not Emily, but the average age of the cells in your body is between 7 to 10 years. You didn't know you were that young, did you? In fact, your liver replaces itself every 18 months. That's amazing. Every 18 months, got a new liver. In fact, the human body, which is made by God, is different to everything that's made by humans. Because with everything that's made by humans, the more you use it, be it a car, a laptop, a mobile phone, the more it wears out. But do you know, the more you use a human body, the stronger it becomes. Yesterday, I was a little bit clumsy as uh, Paul Leonard was helping me to open the PA desk over there. And I pulled, the, I pulled the lid back a bit quickly and I caught his finger on the lid and it, and it cut and it bled. And uh, um, is it still bleeding? Is, it, is he? No? <laughs> okay, good. Right answer. <laughs> Because we all know that very soon, even the mark of that cut will be gone. The body is an amazing thing, isn't it, the way it heals. But that's not quite the same with emotional or relational wounds. Why is that? Why haven't we Christians been healed? If Jesus heals, why haven't we Jesus followers been completely healed? And the answer is, I think, that some wounds run very deep. Healing might come, but it might come in stages. And perhaps some of those wounds cause so much trauma that we need some time of maturing and maturing in our faith before we can face up to them. Very often, childhood trauma is suppressed until well into adulthood, and then it surfaces and needs to be dealt with. Our passage today, I think, is very helpful in this regard. On the surface, this chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah is just a list of all the people who helped rebuild the wall. You heard Fred read some of it out. But it's so much more than that. Yes, it is on the one hand the historical account of the rebuilding of the broken walls of Jerusalem. But it's also a crucial part of the healing process which the Israelites went through in recovering from the trauma of the destruction of their city and their exile to Babylon some hundred years before. And if we think that that might seem a bit extreme, a hundred-year healing process, well, perhaps it's not when we remind ourselves that this year, Remembrance Sunday will mark the hundredth year when we will have engaged in an ongoing healing process of remembering those killed in the First World War and all of the lost potential, the lost dreams and visions of that generation. The good news is, I think that this chapter will help us all along our different 
journeys of restoration and healing and wholeness and salvation and justification to faith and hope as we consider what Nehemiah has to say to us. So, let's go to the text. It's on your service sheets. It's also on page 485 in the Church Bibles if you want to follow along there. And very briefly, recapping, Nehemiah who is the grandson of Jewish exiles, has grown up in palace luxury in the distant city of Susa on the far east, on the the right-hand side of that slide. And um, God has called him to lead a massive project to restore the broken walls of Jerusalem. And after praying and finding favour with King Artaxerxes, he travels the 1,250 miles across modern-day Iraq and Syria and down into Israel through that green Um, crescent, if you like, and reaches the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. And he's inspected the ruined city with its broken walls and its charred gates. And at the end of the chapter two, he gathers all the people together and he says, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And chapter three begins with a simple statement. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt Jerusalem the sheep gate. And the whole of the rest of this chapter chronicles piece by piece, starting with the sheep gate, which is on the northern side of the city and going in an anti-clockwise direction all the way around the city, who was responsible for rebuilding each part of the wall and each gate. And the detail is extraordinary. Take verse 1. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Okay, question number one. Who ever heard of a bishop working on a building site? But that's what happened. It sounds crazy, but perhaps not so crazy when you think about it. Because a few hundred years before, Solomon had presided over the original building of Jerusalem, the the original building of the temple in Jerusalem, and he declared in one of the Psalms that he wrote, Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Nehemiah had done the same thing. He sought the Lord in prayer. And so at the start of this rebuilding, it is the priests, God's representatives to the people, who begin the work and then dedicate it to God. We're not to seek restoration and healing simply so that we can feel better, but because it is the will of a compassionate God who loves us, who, according to Paul the Apostle, is through Jesus reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. God wants restoration and healing. Most importantly, the healing of our relationship with him. In Nehemiah's day, that was done through temple worship and sacrifices made in Jerusalem. Do you know why the gate that the priests rebuilt was called the Sheep Gate? Because it was close to the temple and therefore it was the gate through which most of the sheep were brought for sacrifice in the temple. 400 years later, Jesus of Nazareth would walk out of one of those gates where, nailed to the cross, he would become the sacrifice through which all who put their trust in him 
can experience healing and restoration and salvation. The beginning of healing starts with God at the centre, God first, and the knowledge that it's God's heart for every one of us, that we turn away from sin and accept his mercy and forgiveness. So let's read on to verse 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. By the way, the fish gate is on the west side of the city. Makes perfect sense because the Mediterranean Sea is also to the west of the city. So the fish brought in from the coast would have come in through that gate. Anyway, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place, it says. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. Next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. Do you notice that phrase coming up time and time again? Next to him, next to him, next to him. You can imagine just how much collaboration this building project required. Because it's okay if you just build your one bit. But wherever your bit was going to join onto the next bit, you would have to work in close collaboration with each other to ensure there weren't arguments and disagreements of how it all came together. But that didn't happen because they worked in unity and in community. And I think it's a wonderful picture of how church community should work. Because if we're all united as the body of Christ, that's the context in which healing and restoration will occur. What's more, they were extraordinarily diverse and totally unselfish. Do you know, this chapter identifies people coming from at least eight different territories outside of the city of Jerusalem from a 15 to 20 mile radius, to come and help repair the walls of Jerusalem. And if that doesn't sound too impressive, just remember that 15 to 20 miles for someone in that culture would be like coming from Manchester to help rebuild the walls of St. Matthew's in terms of the travelling time that it would cost. I love it when churches help each other out. We ran an evening of safeguarding training this week But we invited other churches to benefit from it. And those other churches will reciprocate when they run training. What's more, in a wonderfully selfless way, Greyfriars Church, as you know, is going to release Sarah Jones, their curate, to come here for three months while Kirsty and I are on sabbatical. That's amazing. That's so generous. It reminds me that the early church shared everything they had. And I believe today that the barriers are coming down and that church itself is being healed and restored. But there's always resistance to healing and restoration. And and, and that's what we see in verse 5. We're told that the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Sometimes resistance comes from the outside, as in this case. But very often, it comes from the inside. We either have a conscious or a subconscious interest in avoiding change. 
In this case, the problem seems to be pride. The phrase, didn't put their shoulders to the work, according to Raymond Brown's commentary on Nehemiah, suggests that pride, rather than laziness, was what kept them from the work. Because it's agricultural imagery for uh, describing a stubborn ox who won't be yoked. Pride is often a stumbling block. Because until we come in humility and admit our need, we simply cannot receive the healing power of the cross of Christ. And fear of change is another obstacle to healing. Because if I'm healed, then I have no excuse left for not obeying the call of God on my life. Perhaps these noblemen were afraid of how a strengthened Jerusalem might impact their lives and upset the status quo. Right now, they were big fish in a small pond. But what if Jerusalem was restored? What if, what if that pond became considerably bigger? Rather, maybe, leave things as they are. Maintain the status quo. And it can be the same with our healing journeys too. Finally, everyone did what they could. Very often in church life, well, some of us can avoid serving in some areas with the excuse that, well, it's not my gifting, you know, it's not really me. And it's true that there are some ministries which require a high degree of skill and competence, like our lovely music team over here, because if you can't play an instrument or sing in tune, well, you can't really join the music team or bless the church's worship. But there are many other areas of serving where we can all play a part. Most people can welcome people on the door. Most people can help with the tea and coffee. Most people can perhaps at least help on the crash team. Those are three areas which don't require great skill, but simply need a positive attitude and a friendly smile. And also, we happen to need more people to help in those three areas. So here's a quick plug. Come and find me later if you can offer to help. The people who helped to restore the wall of Jerusalem were mostly not builders. Although some of them no doubt were, Nehemiah's careful notes show us that there were goldsmiths, perfume makers, priests, merchants, rulers, and many others who all mucked in to lend a hand. Serving alongside others is one of the most healing, restoring things that you can do. Friday night, I was helping on the Mind the Gap team for the youth in the church hall. And uh, in fact, Claire was on on the team for the first time and she encouraged some of the kids to play doubles on table football with us. And I was on one side with one of the children, she was on the other side with the other other child. And uh, it was really good fun, it got so competitive. I didn't realise Claire was that competitive. I think she won two out of the three games. (laughs) Of course, I'm not at all competitive. (laughs) But, you know, I think we all left elated. Even though that we'd been serving, we left elated because we had so much fun. We laughed so much. Serving together is a wonderful way of of a wonderful route to healing and, and restoration. So I want to leave you with this thought. Healing and restoration is rarely, if ever, a solo pursuit. It nearly always happens in community. The most successful programs in the world for freeing people from addictions 
are some version of the 12-step program started by Alcoholics Anonymous for two reasons. Firstly, they all put God at the centre. And secondly, they all take place in a group setting. That is no accident. That's why church family... That's why church family is so important and why small groups are so important. Because healing and restoration takes place in community. And Fred's story so powerfully brought out what Nehemiah has been showing us, that healing and restoration come through God's people, sharing the gospel, united in community, being alongside each other, serving together, ministering to one another and putting others before ourselves. And I'll finish with a very short story that I told at the 11.45 service last week. Many years ago, a young woman came to live with us for a while, and she suffered from an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. She would hardly eat. She went through every psychologist and doctor and psychiatrist and hospital, you name it. And she went down and down and down and down. Nothing they did or gave her or they said or we said helped her. She nearly died so many times. They had to force feed her by tube. They had to section her under the Mental Health Act. But nothing worked. And for 15 years she hovered between life and death. Her mother Carolyn had been terribly abused as a child by a group of Satanists. And now it seemed that her daughter Jess was possessed by a demon that was determined to kill her. And some years ago now, in a last-ditch attempt to try anything that might help, Kirsty and I went into the Royal Berkshire Hospital where she was, and in the multi-faith room we held a communion service for her, and we prayed for Jesus to release her from what seemed like the demon of an illness. And not long afterwards, she managed to enrol on a programme a church-run program in Sheffield called City Hearts, which, among other things, helps women who have been deeply wounded by caring for them in community. And, not, and the team there loved her, they prayed with her, they encouraged her, they did all they could to show her God's unconditional love. And to cut a long story short, Jess was freed of her demon by the love of Jesus, poured out through the people of that church. And some of us may not be living such dramatic stories, but many of us are carrying wounds. What Nehemiah shows us is a whole people group healing the wounds of the past through putting God first, through living in unity and community, and despite not being builders by trade, doing what they could. And well, I won't tell you the very end of the story, because that would spoil the next several Sunday sermons, but I'll just say this. The story ends well. So this morning, as we take communion together, let's bring our woundedness to God. And let's ask him, as he promised through the prophet Joel, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And let's recommit our lives to him. In Jesus' name, amen.